So uh, again, welcome to Sardis. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to kind of give you a a little bit of a testimony uh, of my life uh, this morning as I uh, begin. Uh, As I grew up, my parents always had me in church, involved in church children's activities, and as I got older, in youth group. Basically, if there was something going on, I was there. And I knew not even to discuss it much because that's just the way it was going to be, all right? And uh, I saw my mom teach children for years, both in Awana and, and just teaching. She loved to be around kids. Uh, and from what they, uh, I saw my dad and my mom in Bible studies, and we did all kinds of stuff as a family uh, in and around the church. From what... They, my parents, told me I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was five years old in my Sunday school class. What I'm about to share with you, I am not proud of and do not look back on with any type of fond memory. I don't remember what happened at that Sunday school class when I was five years old. What I do remember is I really didn't care about spiritual things as I grew up. I knew how to play the part of being a Christ follower follower when I had to, but my heart was focused on me and what I could get. I stole money from my parents and from other students in school. I learned where the teachers kept their grade books and snuck in and changed my grades so I would pass the class. Remember, I'm not proud of this, folks. I was a serial liar and overall my very manipulative. I was still like this when I met Kathy. As I walked her home one night, I remember this and always will. She confided to me that she had recently decided to only date Christian boys and that she was glad she met me because I was Christian. That made me feel great, but it was my cultural Christianity that she saw. It wasn't my heart. Fast forward a few years and I would be in the military, stationed uh, in tech school in Colorado. I spent 18 months there learning electronics. And this was truly the first time I was out from underneath the cultural Christianity influence. And I enjoyed hanging out with the guys and everything that that entailed, playing softball and in general, just not at all interested in spiritual things, and church was not even on the radar. Kathy and I were still in a serious relationship, and I missed her. And there were times I felt alone. And my mom, bless her soul, asked me on a regular basis when I could call where I was going to church. And most of the time, I lied because I really wasn't going to church. I got tired of her asking me that question, and it rubbed me wrong more and more. It just, I, it's just like, yes, Mom, I'm going to church. Just move on. As I look back on that time, I realized God had brought me to a crisis point in my life, and it was time for me to make a choice. I needed to tell my mom I just didn't really believe in all that church stuff so she would leave me alone. I needed to tell Kathy I really wasn't a Christ follower and hoped she would still love me. Or I needed to choose to live like I was really a Christian. I knew the gospel. I had heard it all my life, but it hadn't changed my life. I decided in this time to visit a couple of churches as I sorted all this out. I was, it was during these visits I realized the self-centered I really was. It was during this time I knew what I needed to do. I asked God to forgive me and told Him I wanted to change. 
No one led me in a prayer. I didn't ask Jesus to come into my heart. I had just come to a place where for the first time in my life, I knew I needed him. Because I was a sinner. And everything I had done in the past was a lie when it came to church and my walk with Christ. That's when my life started to really change. That's when transitions started to happen in my life. They weren't easy, and I failed often. Because there were many uh, temptations where I was to go back to the way that I was. But by God's grace, my life continued to transition from what I was then to what I am now. It has nothing to do with me. I don't think I was saved at five years old. I believe I was truly saved at tech school. Why? Because that's when my life began to transition into something I had never been before. It has been that continuing transition of my life over the years that has brought me assurance of salvation to my life over all these years, even when I fail. Why did I share this with you? Because salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is always followed by life transformation and transitions And I believe that is what Luke wants us to grasp in chapter 18 of Acts. So if you would please turn with me to chapter 18 of Acts. In the first half of this chapter, we found Paul in Corinth, a very pagan city. And he had spent many months there recovering from previous months of difficult ministry. God had blessed Paul with new friends, reuniting reuniting with old friends in a very successful ministry. But it was time for him to leave Corinth and to make his way back to his sending church at Antioch. It seems as if Luke pauses here for a few minutes to draw our attention to three unrelated events, all right in a row, in the second half of chapter 18. These events show various people going through transitions in their walk with Jesus Christ. Luke draws our attention to Paul first. As he left Corinth on his way to Antioch, he didn't go straight to Antioch because he was intent on going to Jerusalem first. Why? We found out uh, a couple weeks ago to burn his hair that he had cut after fulfilling his Nazarite vow. That raises a question, why did Paul take that Nazarite vow, a part of the law, when he knew the law had been done away with? And as we walked through that event in Paul's life, we saw that Paul was still transitioning away from his life under the law. What he did wasn't sin, it just wasn't necessary to go through a Nazarite vow to show his deep thankfulness for God's blessings to him in Corinth. And if you missed that sermon, is on our podcast at Sardis Sermons. It's on all the major uh, podcast uh, sites. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the second and third events that Luke draws our attention to. The first one, the scene, focuses on a man by the name of Apollos and his transition from a zealous, God-fearing Jew to a Jew who is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So please follow along as I read Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he, only knew only, though he knew only the baptism of John. He begins to speak boldly in the name, uh, boldly in the synagogue. 
But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to go to, uh, to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples uh, to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he was, power, he was powerfully refuting, refuted, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what we see here in these verses, okay, is transition number two, Paul, uh, uh, transition number two, Apollos. Acts, in, this, in, our, in our passage, in Acts 18, uh, he, we find out a lot of different information, a lot of facts about Apollos. Uh, first, we find out, okay, that he was from Alexandria, all right? Uh, Alexandria was in Egypt, and it was an intellectual city that rivaled Athens. At this time, there were around one million Jews in Alexandria, and even though Apollos didn't grow up in Jerusalem, uh, he was still very, very uh, adept at living in a Jewish community. And this was, uh, we, can't, we really can't imagine the, the level of intellectual uh, training he would have had in this situation. Uh, it was, uh, they were proud, Alexander was proud of uh, being able to train men highly in, in education and in, in various, uh, not just Christian Jewish Judaism, but also just as a general whole about the world. It was a very, very um, um, intellectual city to be in. And so we see that in verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Um, and he came to Ephesus, and that's where uh, this story picks up. And we find out that he was an eloquent man in verse 24. He was an eloquent man. He was a man who would grab your attention with his speaking. Not only was he a wonderful orator, but the word here, this idea of eloquent, okay, means that he, would, uh, he knew what he was talking about. He was a powerful speaker, not only in his presence, not only in how he spoke, not only in how he carried himself. This whole idea was well, when he stood up, people were going to listen because he knew what he was talking about, and he did it well. In fact, some say that he was even a better uh, preacher than Paul because we find uh, in the New Testament that Paul was not always thought of as a great speaker or even a great man to look at. But that's not the case here with Apollos. He was an eloquent man. He had gone through what we would call university and graduate school, graduate school and his credentials were impressive. We also see in verse 24 uh, that he was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. This is one part, and you'll hear me say this often, uh, periodically, not often. I believe that the ESV really missed the mark. I don't think that they give us the picture, okay, on the word when it talks about competent in Scripture. The Greek word does mean competent. It does mean that he knew the Scripture. He did know what he was talking about. But there's a lot more to that word. The Greek here uh, used here is dunamai. And our word uh, for for dynamite comes from that word. And it has the idea of power and of might. In fact, we see that idea coming through better in other translations in the NASB, a New American Standard Bible. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. We, good translation there. I mean, and this is not a bad translation. I just think it it's, doesn't give the picture. He came to Ephesus and he was what in the scriptures? Mighty in scriptures. That, that's a better uh, idea, Pastor. We also see that same thing in the New King James and King James. It says, uh, an eloquent man and what? 
mighty in scriptures. Some of you use the Holman Christian standard, and it says that he was powerful in the scriptures. Was, does that carry the idea that he was competent like the ESV says? Yes, but it, it doesn't give the idea that this man was a powerful speaker. And he knew the scriptures. The scriptures, we have to understand, did not here include the New Testament. They had not been written yet. It has not been written yet. So Apollos was mighty in using the Old Testament scriptures. He was a first-class orator and a first-class scholar. We also find in verse 25 that he uh, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Look at verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In light of the fact that Paul was an Old Testament scholar, the Lord here probably refers to Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. And this statement means that he knew the ways of Jehovah. He didn't just have the knowledge of the Scriptures. He knew the ways of Judaism. He knew how to walk it out in real life. It means that he knew the Old Testament law and he tried to follow it with everything that he was. It wasn't that he just knew the, 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 the Scriptures. He wasn't just a scholar, but he knew the way. He knew how to walk. He knew the path that he was supposed to walk as a Jewish man. And then we also find out he was fervent in spirit in verse 25. He did not merely know the Old Testament uh, Scripture with a detached intellectual academic awareness. He spoke about them and taught them with energy and conviction and passion. And this means he spoke with uh, conviction based on something that was deeply embedded in his heart. He believed what he was talking about. He believed what he was preaching and teaching. He believed what the Scripture said. And I'm going to tell you something, as a speaker, it really makes you a better speaker no matter who you are if you really believe what you're talking about. If you, if you have this deep-seated interest and this deep-seated sense that what I am getting ready to say, I not only believe, but it's really, really important. And this is the type of man Apollos was. He, what was he deeply convicted about? We also find that in verse 25. You also find that. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus. He spoke about Jesus. He was convicted that the Old Testament scriptures clearly showed that Jesus was the Messiah. But Apollos had a really big blind spot in his knowledge of Jesus. He knew only the baptism of John, and that's what it says there. Though he, uh, he, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He only knew the baptism to repentance. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in enlightening a person, producing repentance in him or her, and drawing that person to Christ. He knew the Scriptures. He, under, he, he believed what John the Baptist was talking about. He re- believed in the uh, baptism of repentance. He understood that the Scriptures clearly taught that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But he had no idea what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. He had no idea what it meant to be saved. Apollos was strong in the knowledge of the first person of the Trinity, and even to uh, a certain extent, the knowledge of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, but he knew nothing about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And this is where God brings a husband and wife team into Apollos' life to open his eyes to the blind spot that he had. And before we look at that husband and wife team, I want to make sure that we all are on the same page here. Apollos was not saved before he met this husband and wife team. All the talents he had were natural talents, talents he honed as an unsaved man with discipline and study. He was a dedicated man of the Jewish God Jehovah, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. He was not a saved man at this point in time. 
And with that in mind, let's see who this husband and wife uh, team were that God used to open up Paul's eyes. Look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. We uh, were introduced to Priscilla and Aquila earlier in the chapter 18. Paul had met them in Corinth when he was weak and when he needed uh, some uh, companionship. And he actually worked for them. They were tent makers. Uh, they were uh, what we would call working class folks at the time. And they ended up hosting a church in their house later on. Uh, they were not intellectuals like Apollos. They were Jews. They had no status in, uh, Rome, in the Roman world and no exceptional education. But they were dedicated, active believers who would be used by God to instruct an Old Testament scholar who was an accomplished speaker. And I, I know this is a little bit of imagination here. I can imagine when Apollos came uh, to, uh, to Ephesus that Priscilla and Aquila uh, might have said to each other, hey, there, there's, this, there's this really good guy preaching uh, uh, in the temple. And hey, let's go, let's go hear him tonight, all right? And uh, the whole synagogue is talking about him. So they went to the synagogue and heard this great Jewish teacher, this orator, uh, who was learned and eloquent. But they found out while they were listening to him, he didn't know the gospel. He didn't know uh, the whole story. He had part of the story. All right? So I can see Aquila looking at his wife and Priscilla looking at him and going like, he really doesn't know it all. He doesn't. And they might have said to himself again, just some you know, imagination license here. They might have said to themselves, this man certainly knows the Bible. He can quote the Old Testament effectively, but he does not know that Jesus has already died for our sin, was raised from the dead, and is now ascended to heaven. So after the service, they were standing in the vestibule, because that's, I'm sure they had one. All right, They were standing in the vestibule. They must have uh, said to each other, what should we do? What should we, what, what should we do? And maybe Priscilla said, hey, let's, let's invite him over for dinner. And Aquila replied, hey, that's a good idea. And maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk to him. And so they did. And Apollos came to dinner, and after he had enjoyed their hospitality, they began to tell him about Jesus. I'm sure this is not the way it happened, but let's just use our imagination. They must have said, we were very moved by your teaching from the Old Testament. You know it well, and it was a great blessing to our hearts. But we wondered whether you have heard that the one you were speaking about has really come. This would have been something new to Apollos, and he may have said to them, what do you mean has come? And as they explained to him the way of God more accurately, we come to find out that he accepted Jesus Christ. He accepted what they were teaching, and it transformed his ministry. And you say, well, how do we know that he accepted Christ? How do we know that change happened? Well, if you look at the next few verses, verses 26 through 28, uh, it says this, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, he, he, wanted, he had talked to them and now he wanted to go to Achaia. Their brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. If he had not accepted Jesus Christ, if he had not uh, understood who Jesus Christ, do you think the brothers would have recommended him to go? to a church and teach. No. And then we also uh, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he power, powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Could he have greatly helped those who had believed by grace if he had not already ex also experienced that grace itself? And you see, and the power uh, in public is showing by the scriptures that what? 
Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. His whole ministry transformed. He still was a powerful speaker, but he knew Jesus now. So what I want to understand here, let's pause just for a minute and to reflect for a moment. Just on what has happened here. Something we see in this little event with Apollos. First, knowledge and zeal are not enough. Knowledge and zeal are not enough for Christ followers. Knowledge of the Scripture and skill in presenting them are not enough. We must know Jesus Christ. There are always people in churches who are not saved but who know a great deal. They know the Old Testament and the New Testament. They know all the Bible stories and can tell them well, but they don't know Jesus. They know the gospel, but they have never experienced the saving truth of the gospel. Like who? Me. Like me. I'd grown up in church. I knew all the Bible stories. I was able to teach children with my mom. It was theologically correct. I mean, they're Bible stories. Who can't talk about David and Goliath? But I really hadn't had my life changed by Jesus. They know Jesus' name like I did, but they do not know Him personally as their Savior and Lord. And they're really not His disciples. This may be true for some of you here this morning. You may have gone to church for many years and may know a great deal about the Scriptures and evenly, maybe even fervently taught them and have done ministry, but you don't know Jesus Christ. How do you know if you are one of those people? Ask yourself this question. Is your life constantly transforming, transitioning into a life that looks more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the world around you? Are you constantly finding that you uh, uh, desire the Scriptures more and more? Are you constantly finding that you love to be around the body of Christ more and more? Do you find transitions in your life where you want, you're laying things aside uh, in your life that are things of this world so that you can spend more time with Christ in prayer, more time with Christ in His Word, that you can spend more time with Christ's people in church and in ministry. Do you find those things, those, your life transitioning to that over a long period of time? That's when you have assurance of salvation. When you understand that my life is changing because I have a Holy Spirit in, existing in me that is changing my life. It is not just a profession of faith. It means that my life is transitioning. Remember what I said about my life. I knew about Jesus for many, many years, but there was no assurance in my life until I saw my life transitioning from what it was to what it has become today. I can tell you right now that I am not the man I was. I don't love the same way. I desire the Scriptures more. I desire to be around people, you folks, those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. There is nothing more important in my life than my relationship with Jesus Christ. I was not that man when I came to that crisis point in my life. And this has been now well over 30 years or more. I'm leaving it at that. And I would hope that my children and my wife can see and understand that I am still transitioning today. I am still being changed. And that even when I go through my times when I am just not walking with the Lord where I need to, I can still look back 
and hold on to those moments of transition where I know I have changed. What specifically do you have in your life? What transitions do you have in your life that are ongoing today, in the last six months, in the last year, in the last two years, in the last five years, that you can point and say, this is where I was, and this is what I'm becoming, and this is where I'm going. That is the proof that you've been changed by the Holy Spirit. A saved life will always be a changed life. A saved life will always be, a trans- will always be transitioning more and more into Christ's likeness. And there is no assurance of salvation unless that is happening in your life. We also see here, which I really love, God uses different kinds of people. God, uh, God uses different types of people in His plan. Aquila and Priscilla were different from Apollos, and Apollos was different from them. Paul was a feisty Jewish rabbi. Apollos was a man of polish and learning. Aquila and Priscilla were a common working class couple. Each one was necessary in God's plan. Amen? I find it very interesting that God used a common working couple to minister to the Apostle Paul in his need of rest and to Apollos in his need of salvation. A common working class couple worked in Paul's life, ministered to Paul. A common working class people who had no status in Rome helped change Apollos' life, help transition Apollos' life. God has given each of us distinct spiritual gifts and natural talents. Those gifts are needed where you are. If you think I am not needed because someone else is more eloquent or someone else is more hospitable or someone else has more energy or is a better evangelist than uh, than than you are, you are making a grave mistake. If you neglect the use of your gift, The church will be weaker because of your neglect. God needs every single person in this body to be using their gifts to minister to each other and to be witnesses of Christ outside this building. There is nobody that God doesn't use. He uses different kinds of people. And it doesn't make any difference of your social class. It doesn't make any difference of your economic class. It doesn't make make any difference. He can use you in any situation for you to impact people for Jesus Christ. God uses all of His people to help others in their transition to become more like Christ. There's more we can look at here, but let's move on to the last transition that Luke draws our minds to. Let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And as it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found... Let me pause there just for a minute. Bear with me. This always crosses my mind. Remember when Paul, in his second missionary journey, wanted to go into Asia? And God said, no. Do you know who was in Asia? Ephesus. And so he went across and he went into Europe and came back in his missionary journey. And you want to know something? God didn't tell Paul that he didn't need to go to Ephesus. God just said, it's not time yet. So sometimes when God closes a door, understand that he may open it again at a later time, just like he did here with Paul. Okay, that was a rabbit trail. All right. Uh, No, I didn't send a text to somebody to remember. All right. Um, The people in my class will understand that. There he found some disciples, Paul, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one that was to come after him, that is Jesus. 
On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul and his, uh, had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and began to speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. There were about 12 men. And what we see here in transition number three is disciples of the transitioning of the disciples of John the Baptist. Luke now reconnects us with Paul's travels. He has started his third missionary journey. And you say, where do we see that? Look, go, go back to uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 22. Look at verse 22, chapter 18. This is Paul. We've already looked at this. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down. We understood that that meant he went up to Jerusalem and came back down to Jerusalem. We know why he went there. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from, the play, uh, and went from one place to the next. So he went uh, up to Jerusalem, went down, uh, and then came to Antioch. And then verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from, placed, uh, from one place to the next through the whole region of Galatia. That's the start right there of his third missionary journey. All right? Uh, so he's now come back to Ephesus like he said he would. And when Paul arrives in Ephesus, Luke writes that he found some disciples. Describing them as disciples, we need to understand something. Describing them as disciples does not mean that these men were saved. These men were not saved. And you say, well, every time I talk about disciples, talk, you know, doesn't it always mean followers of Christ? No, it doesn't. Uh, the word disciple simply means follower. That's all it means. Sometimes it is attached to Christ's followers, sometimes it's not. Uh, the Bible speaks of disciples other than Jesus' disciples. We have the same word used, and I'm, I'll read a couple of passages. You can write them down if you want to look them up. Uh, he speaks of, uh, the Bible speaks of disciples of the Pharisees. Okay, same word. And you see that in Mark 2.18 and Luke 5.33. You also see that uh, there are, uh, there's many references to John the Baptist's disciples. And you see that in Matthew 9.14, uh, Matthew 11.2. And then also in Luke and in John, you can uh, look those up for yourself. And we know that all, uh, that, those, that all of those called disciples of Jesus Christ in the New Testament were not saved. We know that. All right? And we know that because of John 6, verse 66. After this, he had had some difficult teaching. All right? He had all these people following him. They were all his disciples because that's what it meant. They wanted to learn from him. They wanted to follow him. But here we see in John 66, 66 after, after many of his disciples turned back after this, his teaching, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They weren't saved. They didn't like what he was teaching. It was like, hey, I don't like this rabbi anymore. I don't like this teacher anymore. I'm leaving. One of the aspects of a Christ follower is that no matter what's happening, they never leave. They never walk away. They never walk away. And so Paul's question also leads us to see that just because they were disciples, he didn't assume they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He found disciples. He knew they were disciples. Now he's going to find out what kind. And, he's, and they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Or, uh, Holy Spirit. And then he said, into what then were, you, uh, then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That, those two questions pointed Paul to understand that these were disciples of John the Baptist, similar to Apollos. They had been baptized into the teaching, into the baptism of repentance that 
John the Baptist talked about, but they didn't know who the Holy Spirit was. They didn't understand who the Holy Spirit was. They were disciples, but they weren't Christ's disciples. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Their response, like I said, to Paul's questions showed they were disciples of John the Baptist, Old Testament saints. They had not heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost almost 25 years before. They didn't understand that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so Paul filled in their blind spot in a similar way that Apollos had his blind spot filled in by Aquila and Priscilla. Paul helped them understand that Jesus was the one John the Baptist was pointing to. And we see that these 12 men believed Paul's teaching were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You think that was a major transition of these 12 men's lives? Not long after they met Paul, they were transformed from followers of John the Baptist into followers of Jesus Christ. Christians saved through faith in Jesus Christ. What a major transition. They were lost in darkness. They understood who Jesus Christ the Messiah was. They accepted him as their Savior, and now they walked in light for all of eternity. You ask, well, what, what is this idea? Why, why the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit? Why? Because we don't see that all the way through Acts. We only see it at certain times. Well, first we need to understand that these men would need proof that Paul was really a messenger from God and not just another religious teacher, not just another religious rabbi. They needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what they believed was true. This was new to them. This was new to that community. And so there was the physical manifestation of speaking in tongues. And, and then second, these 12 men symbolized all the people groups in Christ's command in Acts 1.8 have been reached. We're very familiar with this verse, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, where else? In Judea, where else? Samaria, and where else? Into the earth. I want to show you something. We have already been through this. In Acts chapter 2, there was a manifestation, a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Okay? To who? Which group? The Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, there was a physical manifestation of the Spirit, both tongues, uh, speaking in tongues, and that was for the Samaritans. And then in Acts 10, it was the Gentiles. And now in Acts 19, it was these Old Testament saints these who had uh, accepted John the Baptist. Each time, all of these here, it was only at certain times when like a new group of people needed to be assured that what Paul or one of the apostles was teaching was absolutely right and true. Then there was a physical manifestation of the Spirit. It was like this, this, this uh, seal of Paul is right or the apostles are right. And God is going to show you this through this physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit. These Jews had been dispersed because of Rome persecution. They had heard and believed the message of John the Baptist, but again, they had never heard about Jesus Christ. The manifestation here is the last manifestation we have of the Holy Spirit in the rest of the book of Acts. All these people groups have been reached. All these different people have been, uh, had, had witnessed or had the gospel of Jesus Christ in their midst. We see no Physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit from here on out all the way to chapter 28. From chapter 19 through chapter 28, there is no more physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit when somebody gets saved. Why? Because it's already been done in Acts 1.8. All it is now in the, in the, is how the church is going to grow and how people are coming and how the gospel is defended uh, to rulers in Rome. So, before I close this morning, 
I want to take a minute to further reflect on what we've seen in God's Word. Specifically in these three transitions, the one about Paul a couple of weeks ago and the two that we've seen this morning. Acts is a book of transitions. The major transition Acts draws our mind to is the transition from Judaism and slavery to the Old Testament law to the church and freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the major manifestation or major transition we see. However, with that major, major story of transition, there are literally millions of individual life transitions that move from slavery to sin, slavery to sin to freedom in Christ, from sorrow to joy, from darkness to light, and from death to life. The major, uh, one of the major themes in Acts is this idea of the transitioning from Judaism into the church, from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, a transition. But within that major transition, because of Jesus Christ's followers obeying this command, we get to see and experience hundreds of transitions, individual transitions. It is these transitions, these individual transitions that give us witness to the mercy and grace of our God through, his, through Jesus Christ. Amen? Over the last couple of weeks, we have, Luke reminded us through Paul's transition, Apollos' transition, Aquila and Priscilla's transition, through the disciples of John the Baptist and his transition, or those men, that placing your faith in Jesus Christ will transform your life, and that transformation takes place throughout many life transitions, smaller life transitions. That is the norm we see in Acts. That is the norm we see through the rest of the Bible. You never, ever, you will never find a time where somebody says, I accepted Christ, and their life stays the same. You will never find a time where somebody says, I understand and I prayed a prayer to Jesus or I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, that their lives are not radically different over a period of time. It's just you don't see it anywhere in the Bible. It's always full of transition. It is always full of growing. Does that mean that there is, there's not failure? Does that mean that there aren't times when people uh, uh, fall away or, or, or struggle? No. But what do you see? Throughout the, throughout the New Testament. There's always a life transition. Throughout church history, you see a life of transition. And it is all because of the witness that we're supposed to bring to the world. The witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our primary goal for living. You don't live for you. You don't live for your family. You don't live for your, for your job. You don't live for your hobby. You live to be a witness for Jesus Christ in every situation that God places you in. That's what you live for. And as you transition into making that more and more part of your life, that is your assurance of salvation. I'm becoming more and more Christ-like. Each of the transitions we experience in our lives builds the effectiveness of our witness so that the world can see faith in Jesus Christ will change your life. So many times we tell people, it will change your life if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And they go through a, a process, whatever process that is, and their lives stay the same. That's not, what it's, that's not the picture we see here. For years I thought I was saved when I wasn't. And the only witness I had of my profession of salvation as a child was my Sunday school teacher, and I don't even remember that event. I don't remember the Sunday school teacher. I, the only thing I remember is that my parents later on in life said, you're a Christ follower because you accepted Christ as, a, as, as five years old in Sunday school. 
And I have no recollection of that whatsoever. None. I can't remember that. But I can remember when I realized I needed to make a choice. I can remember with God's help that my life needed to change. And with God's help through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the confession of my sin and my belief that Jesus died for me, I can bear confident witness to you this morning of my salvation in Jesus Christ. Because I can look back at my life and see that I was not and am not the man that I was then. I am not that man today. I can look back over the years and see where God has drastically transformed my life through many transitions. And so many times we think that we have to be really, really bad. It could be drug addiction. It could be sexual addiction. It could be whatever it is. Those are the big transitions, you know, that people have. Listen, I, I was not a good kid, all right? And you guys, I, I gave testimony to some of the things I did and others I didn't give testimony to. But I wasn't one of those radically bad kids. I was just kind of a sinner going through life. But I can still see the transitions in my life. I can still give confident witness to what God has done in my life because He changed me. I praise that God this morning, I am not the same man I was so many years ago. Let me ask you a question. What life transitions? What transformation in your life do you hold on to? Do you hold on to that gives evidence that you truly have the Holy Spirit living within you and that you are changing and growing each and every day, each and every month, each and every year into something that is more Christ-like instead of being the person that you were? Let me ask you that. If you took away the prayer that you said, if you take away somebody telling you that you are now a Christian, what evidence do you have that you are one? What evidence do you have that you are one? What transitions in your life, what life transformations do you have that you will set you there and you can confidently look at somebody and say, I am a Christ follower. Close your eyes for a minute, please. As Michelle plays, I'd like you to reflect on your life a little bit. Are you absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, sure that you are a Christ follower based on life change, based on transitions, based on transformation, and not just a prayer you said many years ago? Reflect. You don't need to lie to yourself like I did. Just say, what do I have? It, maybe there's not a lot of transition. Maybe there's not a lot of transformation and it's been a tough road for you. And that, that's okay. But is there transitions? Are there transitions? If you say, not really, I can manufacture some. I can, I can interpret some to be that way. 
But if, you, but if you're just going to be honest with yourself, I, I really don't. That can change today. Your life can begin to change today by realizing who you are, a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. And Adam and I would love to help you understand that better and walk through that. And as church ends today, I'll be up here at the front. Adam will be around. If you want us to, to just talk to us, if you want to say, I, I'm not sure, please come and talk to us right after service. I'll stay up front. If you're saying, I do see the transition in my life. I do see that I am drastically a different person in my wants and my desires and my priorities and my love for the church and my love for the scripture and my love for Jesus Christ, then now is a time of unadulterated praise that Jesus Christ saved you and that he gave you the Holy Spirit and that he's not done with you yet. Father God, we come to you right now, and I know there are folks here who are having to think long and hard about this. I pray, Lord God, that you would use this as a time to a crisis point in their life like you brought into my life, a, a point in life where you just have to say, where am I at? And Lord God, I praise your name that so many years ago... You opened my eyes to who I was. You opened my eyes to the lies. You opened my eyes to the sin in my life. And Father, you have changed me for so many years. And Father, I pray that you would do something similar to everybody here. That they would, if they're not sure, Father, that they can come to you and say, I want to be sure from here on out. And Father, I pray that for those who are just like myself in awe of what you've done in their lives, I pray, Lord, that there would be much, much praise and adoration because of the work you've done in their lives. Father, God, and direct us, please, as we go out. And I pray that our transitional lives, our transformational lives, would bear great witness to the words that we give to everybody we talk to. In Christ's name, amen.